time. All right, we are going to finish our series. Well, not finish. We are going to go one more past the Beatitudes um, and still wrap it into this series. But this is the last Beatitude. Um, and so we've started this a few weeks back. And there are eight things that Jesus says, and he makes these announcements. Again, we've used this word, the Beatitudes. All the Beatitudes word means, it's a Latin word that means blessing, uh, to bless or to make an announcement of wonderful news. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's making eight separate announcement of, announcements of wonderful news to certain groups of people. Usually it's the people on the lowest end of the totem pole, things that usually don't go their way. Um, but he's offering this, this incredible you know, insight into what life really could be for everyone. Um, so I'm going to start this up, start this particular beatitude off with this question. How hard is it to do the right thing, especially when it's unpopular? Or when you take heat for it? Or when doing the wrong thing is so much easier, right? Well, let me ask you an even more direct question to help us further define what I mean by, quote-unquote, doing the right thing, all right? How hard is it to look like Jesus in a broken world that works so hard to discourage us from doing so? I mean, it can be downright difficult. And there are often unpleasant consequences for living this way. And the word that Jesus chooses to use here, and he uses it very specifically, he uses the word, not just, hey, it's going to get difficult for you. It's going to be hard. You may take heat for it. Uh, Yeah, the wrong thing is going to be easier. He says, no, you might actually get persecuted for it. He uses this word called persecution. However, just like all the other announcements, this one is no different. Those who live this way are not to go, oh, woe is me, and fall into despair. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are, I have wonderful news for those who are persecuted for doing good. Those who are persecuted for doing right. Those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Once again, we have the people that Jesus is making this announcement to, or the who. Those who are doing good, who are doing the right thing, who are living righteously. We have the problem that exists in our broken world, our fallen world, where it is often met with this persecution, and we have then the outcome. We have the promise that the kingdom of heaven actually belongs to them. So on this eighth and final beatitude, Jesus once again gives good news to those on the bottom of the food chain. Because if you're being persecuted, it usually means it's done by those who have the power over those who do not have the power or at least those who do not have the power to retaliate. And that is largely the case. But it also implies here, and as we read throughout the rest of the New Testament, 
It, imp- it includes people here who actually may have the power to retaliate, but choose not to. Because that is what real righteousness looks like. So once again, Jesus is making a direct statement about what true goodness and what rightness looks like. Because this word righteousness, in the original Greek, when you break it down, means this. The act of doing what God requires. So yes, it is an action. Hence the way that it is translated. Doing good, doing right, doing acts of righteousness. But it is a specific kind of action. It is doing what God requires. Now, at first glance, that kind of sounds a bit heavy, doesn't it? I mean, it kind of sounds like a list of rules where we have to find our way to, to meet these things. And, and people over history have done just that, haven't they? They have literally turned this reality of what righteousness is, of, of what God requires, and they've converted that into some kind of a religious system to be worked. With those who perform well at it, well, they are at the top. And those who don't perform very well at it, well, they're kind of stuck at the bottom. And they're having stuff thrown at them and shamed and ridiculed for it. Or we, we have wrongly assumed that what God requires means some kind of, you need to be some kind of an instrument of judgment, which would include retaliation. But all these things are exactly the opposite of the message of Jesus. Having a religious system to work, that you perform, or having the strong assumption that it includes some kind of judgment. All these things are the opposite message of Jesus. So doing what God requires cannot possibly mean that. And then you throw in the whole persecution thing here. And if it just means being persecuted for following your religion, then if we're studying Jesus, that, that kind of seems a little bit off too. So let's kind of drill down and see what he was really after here, what he was trying to say. Uh, let's start unpacking all this with our first point. So number one, follow Jesus. See, ancient Israel was the perfect example of turning the idea of doing what God requires and turning it into a vain, hollow, self-righteous religion. We have people that do that very same thing today. And God constantly had to remind them over and over again what he meant. And most often, he would have to do this. He would have to remind people through one of their prophets, right? Like this one here. Like, well, was God ever really clear about what he required? I don't know. Let's look at this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good or righteous. And what does God, what does the Lord require of you? Oh, just in case you're wondering, in case you forgot, it's to act justly, compassionately, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's interesting that these are all things that Jesus just mentioned in all the Beatitudes. 
Jesus, in, in describing these eight things that he's making announcements for, begins to pull back and draw from many of these things that God was trying to, to remind the people of Israel. And Jesus is clarifying for us what true righteousness is, what it looks like, and by default, clarifying then what it does not look like. So it's not a list of rules. It's a way of life that looks like humility. Humbly living out life in the character of who God is. Displaying mercy and acting justly and compassionately to others, specifically those who aren't usually on the receiving end of those things. Righteousness, acts of righteousness, doing the right thing in your heart looks like A little later in his ministry, Jesus is asked a very direct question on this idea of doing good and doing what God requires. And again, the person that's asking it, of course, is asking it from a very religious perspective. And he asks this. They, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God, what, requires? Again, like, whoa, what, it's not clear enough for you in the Old Testament? And Jesus answered, and he goes, well, let me give you a little more specific answer than even what was provided in the prophets. Jesus answered and said, you know, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Because if you do that, everything else will take care of itself. See, they were asking a religious question. Give me a list to do. Tell us what a righteous looks like, uh, righteous life looks like, Jesus. What does God require of me? Give me the give me the bare bones. So all I have to do is just do what I have to do and no more. Which is what most people want to do. And Jesus gives them an answer. He changes the if you notice, he changes the plural word works, plural, into a singular word work. The work of God is this. The one thing God requires of you now. The one thing that will provide the righteousness that you need is to believe in the one that he has sent. Speaking of himself, of course. Although people that were listening to him at that moment totally missed that. Now, this word believe isn't just some kind of intellectual assent, right? That you just believe that he exists. Or, oh, I even believe that he is God. Or, I believe that he is good. See, the word believe here means to trust with the fullest extent of everything you have. Ultimate confidence. Fully reliant upon. The scriptures tell us that even the demons believe that Jesus is God. Even the demons believe that he exists. Even the demons believe that he is good. But they don't believe like this. This is the kind of belief that Jesus was speaking of. To trust with the fullest extent of everything you have, ultimate confidence, fully reliant upon Jesus is letting you know that the only way you can be righteous and live in keeping with God's perfect character and what is completely right and holy 
for even to act justly and compassionately and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. The only way you can do that is to be fully reliant upon him, having complete confidence in him, fully trusting him. So with that in mind, Jesus takes this conversation about righteousness when he said, hey, by the way, you know, those who get persecuted for righteousness, doing good, doing the right thing, they're going to get persecuted for it. But don't worry. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. In the midst of that conversation, among those who are from the nation of Israel, he makes a very specific change in what he says next. Let's go to that verse in verse 11. He said, people will insult you and hurt you. They will lie and say all kinds of evil things because you follow me. Not not just that you are righteous or you are living righteously. He moves from you'll be persecuted for righteousness to you're going to be persecuted for following me. Why? Because Jesus is the way to righteousness. Jesus is the only way of doing what God requires. That is the one thing that God requires of us to become righteous is to fully trust and put our entire confidence in the one that he sent, in Jesus. He's the only hope for acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Not in following the Jewish law, not in following the law of Moses, not following a list of religious rules that we've created to have some kind of a performance system, and certainly not in exercising judgment or retaliation, even if you have the power to do so. But rather, this whole idea of righteousness is wrapped up in following Jesus fully trusting Jesus for changing you, making you new, giving you this new way to live. And as we've been saying, as you follow Jesus, he makes you new. He makes you new and fully righteous in your spirit. He will make you new and whole and righteous fully in your body, in your mind, when he comes and sets all things right and makes all things new. And he is making you new and more righteous day by day in your mind and in your soul. Fully trusting in Jesus, being fully reliant upon Jesus is how all of this starts. See, Paul says to the Philippians that the reality of our heart here is to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or keeping the law or following all the right rules, but that which is through faith or, again, fully trusting in or belief, fully relying upon Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is so important for us to understand and to grasp. Folks, your ability to be righteous does not come from within you or anything you do. Your ability to be righteous comes from God through Jesus who changes who you are and keeps changing who you are. And that gives us and creates a new identity and therefore a new way to live. However, even 
even though this should be warmly embraced and celebrated in this world quite often, as Jesus noticed, it results in persecution. And that brings us to our second point, number two. Expect persecution, but for specifically living the way of Jesus. Now, there are a couple of angles that I want to approach this from. One is the angle of where the persecution comes from, right? From who? And two is the angle about what you are being persecuted for. And if what you're being persecuted for is really what Jesus was talking about. All right, so one, where does this persecution Jesus is speaking of come from? Well, what Jesus needed them to know as first century Jews and what he needs us to know as 21st century Christians is that much of the persecution is in-house. It's from the religious folks. In our case, those who follow the quote-unquote religion of Christianity, but who do not necessarily follow Jesus, because there is a difference. And they are usually the first group that persecutes those who are trying to live the way of Jesus. And not only that, but this is also the group who sees, or often sees it as their job to retaliate or to operate in some form of judgment against those who have come against them. So in other words, ironically, and totally the opposite of what Jesus is calling us to, the religious people become the persecutors. Very odd, but so true. The second group, of course, and this would make sense, is those who are outright, who outright reject all that Jesus is and who he stands for. And that plays out in all kinds of ways. But either way here, you should expect persecution from one of these two groups of people as you follow and as you live the Jesus way. And so Jesus gives us a few examples, and we're going to take a look at those in just a minute. But before we get there, let me address really quick a trap that many Christians fall into. The what you are being persecuted for. See, folks, you and I can get persecuted for all kinds of things, can't we? Because others can simply disagree with you and they're going to persecute you for it. Or because they're too broken to see what's going on. However, Christians often fall into this trap of claiming that they're being persecuted for their faith, when in reality, it has nothing to do with following Jesus. See, we can do a lot of selfish and dumb and arrogant things that result in some form of persecution, right? I mean, quite often, what are you being persecuted for? Well, quite often, it's self-righteous, judgmental stands we do. Persecution is often self-inflicted. And we take these righteous stands on things loudly and vocally. And what do we normally do? We're very harsh. We're very mean. We're very condescending. We're very rude. We take public stands against certain people or against certain businesses. And neither Jesus nor his disciples ever did that. The early church 
never did that. So why do we do that? Here's where it gets a little sticky. See, what often happens in a country like ours, where Christians have kind of dangerously intertwined their faith with their country, this happens when we adopt some political agenda or belief or platform or cause that we tie so closely to the gospel that we cannot see the difference. And then we get persecuted for that. And we use the same response that, oh, oh, foul. We're being persecuted for our faith. We're being persecuted for being Christians. And again, this is not what Jesus is saying. But because that tends to be a prominent worldview, and not just here, but other places around the world as well, then, then, then we tend to fight for our religious rights in a country like ours. And then again, we claim that we are being persecuted because we feel those rights are eroding or being taken away. Now, really quick, before you start throwing stones at me, <laughs> for a point of clarity... Is having religious freedom a good thing? Absolutely, yes. Are they a blessing if you have the opportunity to have that with whatever country you're living in? Absolutely, certainly. And if you have the opportunity in your country, are Christians allowed to use their political system or voting system of their countries to help protect that expression of faith? Sure. However, it always goes back to two things. First is the how. If you're going to do that, how are you going to do that? And is, is how you're going to do that going to be consistent with the character of Jesus? And two, realizing that the righteousness that Jesus is speaking of here has nothing to do with having or not having religious rights or freedom of religion. This is a way of life that supersedes all of that. Because Jesus has called us to something else entirely. But we see it in our church culture. We see it in the way that things exist around us. And Christians and church people often fight for their rights. And in what kind of posture are they usually using? We're angry. We again take these loud, vocal, mean stands. We become the persecutors or the retaliators. And then there's pushback, and we call it persecution. And Jesus would say, no, that's, that's not persecution for following me. That's simply the consequences of your own ill-advised actions. To be persecuted for righteousness is to be persecuted for following Jesus. And all that Jesus is, looking like Jesus, exhibiting the character and the nature of Jesus. And to that point, Jesus begins to give a little bit of commentary. Now, we don't know if Jesus offered commentary on the earlier Beatitudes, and Matthew just chose not to write them down, we don't know, or Jesus just wanted to speak into this one in particular because it was really tough. Again, we don't know. But this is what it may look like, Jesus said. People will insult you and hurt you. They will lie and say all kinds of evil things about you. 
not because you're being religious, not because you're fighting for your religious right, but because you're following me. And looking like me looks entirely different. But insult and hurt and lie, say all kinds of evil things. None of these things are pleasant for anyone to go through, but a life that lives righteously will bring about some form of persecution from small and just annoying things to possibly, and in the most extreme cases, unfortunately, even though he doesn't mention it here, but it also would include death. But either way, big or small, expect persecution. Expect to be misunderstood. Expect opposition. But the point here Jesus is making is keep following me anyway. Keep following Jesus anyway. Keep doing the right thing. Keep doing good. Keep doing the righteous thing anyway. Keep making the righteous choices that impact this world anyway. No matter what. As you continue to live out of your new creation identity. Because life, even in the midst of persecution, is this weird juxtaposition. It is a call to joy, which is our third point. To walk in the joy that comes from Jesus. See, in the midst of that, Jesus gives us a strange piece of wisdom. He says, rejoice and be glad because you have a great reward for you in heaven. Now, he doesn't just say like he does in the earlier Beatitudes, hey, I've got great news. You can endure persecution because you have a great reward in heaven for you. That's what he's pretty much done for the other seven. Instead, Jesus here adds another piece, and he gives us a call to action, to do something. Go out and retaliate. Nope, that's not what he said. Go back and persecute those who... Nope, that's not what he said. No, rejoice and be glad in the very depth of your soul because you have a great reward in heaven. Not because of those terrible things that are happening to you, but in spite of them. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is already yours. You don't have to do anything to get it. It's already yours. You're not living a certain way to try to earn your way in. It's simply waiting for you already. If you know Jesus, if you've surrendered, if you believe, if that, all that fully committed thing, and the joy of that moment that's waiting for you brings joy into these moments right here. Now, let me be perfectly clear, because we addressed this a few weeks back. This is not, 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 this is not a call to be shiny, happy, fake, pretending church people. Pretending that you're not affected by any of the things that you go through. Pretending that you haven't been hurt by things that have happened to you. Not at all. Folks, you are affected and you will feel hurt. Jesus is not diminishing that. He's just saying, do not allow those who persecute you to win. To destroy you have the final word. Because the final word is waiting for you. The final word's already been given. The final word can be walked in right now. So where along with your pain and hurt, you can also be very confidently joyful and glad because of who God is and the new creation that is coming. Now see, very likely, Jesus was alluding to in this very scripture when he says, rejoice and be glad. 
He's very more than likely referring to one of the Psalms that you and I are very, very familiar with. That says this. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Again, the same words that Jesus used, right? Now, many of us are familiar with this scripture. and We find hope in this and strength in that. And we apply it to our lives on a daily basis. And it certainly can be applied that way no matter what else is going on. But this verse has even more significance. It carries more weight when you see this in context. When you read this as a messianic psalm, looking forward to the day when the Messiah, when Jesus, the fulfillment of being the Messiah, would come and do what he did. So let's go back and look at some of this in context. David writes this, Open for me the temple gates, and I will go in and thank the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the who? righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. And the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The Apostle Peter would use this scripture twice. One in the book of Acts when he was giving his sermon and another time in his first epistle to point directly to Jesus that the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. And then verse 23, the Lord did this. And it is wonderful to us. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it today. This salvation from a broken world, but more so from the repercussions of a broken world, from the persecution being one of those things. This salvation is what brings us righteousness and allows us into the temple gates so we can go into the presence of the Lord. And David didn't just go, I mean, David was a pretty cocky guy, right? He didn't go, and look what I did to do this. Look how I accomplished this. Look how I did all the right things and did all follow the right rules, and then I got my way into the righteousness of God. No, he said, no, the Lord did this. And it's a beatitude for us. It's wonderful. It's wonderful news. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's the language that Jesus is bringing into this beatitude. So folks, in the midst of whatever persecution you may be facing, may you walk in the joy of what Jesus has provided in you and for you and what he continues to do in you and through you towards others and what he will do on that great day. Then lastly, number four, love like Jesus. Now, if you notice, Jesus does not tell us specifically how to apply all this, does he? He he does not give us a blow-by-blow description of how to respond when you are persecuted. It's to rejoice and be glad. He chooses to let the gravity of what he is saying just sink in. And then he addresses that very thing throughout his life and ministry over the next three years. And then we see various applications of this throughout the writings of Paul and Peter and so on in the New Testament. But the word that Jesus uses here implies action. A life that does something. A life that lives a certain way and has a certain trajectory. 
And we see that same idea in other parts of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul would write this. He echoes Jesus' statements perfectly. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Something else that Jesus referred to in his Beatitudes. And flee and pursue our actions. They're not actions in order for you to achieve anything. They're not actions in order for you to gain your righteousness. You've already, again, been given your righteousness in Christ. Our spirit's been made righteous. But in our minds, which are this work in progress, it's simply a matter of choosing that path, that way of life, and walking in it, living the way of Jesus. A life that honors God in all things. A life that includes things like love and peace and walking out of a pure heart. That is to be our response. How do we respond to persecution? This is a good place to start. But then we go a little step further. Paul writes, do everything in love. Everything would include your response toward those who are persecuting you, speaking ill of you, lying about you, slandering you, causing you some kind of hurt. And then Paul gets even more specific in his letter to the Romans. As he says, bless those who persecute you. You've got to be kidding me. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, that is twofold. It removes the option of responding back in kind, cursing them, wishing them ill. It removes the response of retaliation or judgment as an option. And two, it is actually proactive. It's a call to actively bless those who persecute you. To find ways to show love. I mean, we live in a world that encourages retaliation, that encourages saving face, making sure that you're still the one standing at the end, that people know who's boss. But the way of Jesus, there's quite another way. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then Paul gets even a little bit more specific a few verses later. It's like, oh, come on, how much more can we take? He goes, and do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not overcome evil, or do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with Do not repay persecution with persecution. Rather, overcome persecution with righteousness by doing good, by doing the right thing anyway. The things that bring honor to God. The thing that is consistent with the character of Jesus. You serve, you love, you overcome evil, and all the junk that is thrown toward you with what? With good. With righteous behavior. With the way of Jesus. And even if you are still persecuted for it, Jesus has good news for you. But yours is the kingdom of heaven. So would you bring a little bit of heaven into this mess of a world? 